Well, good morning again. It's good to see everybody. Grab a seat. I don't know if your family takes time during the course of the week to uh, sit down and watch TV together, if that's something that you bother to do or not. Uh, there's not a whole lot of TV that our family watches. I, we kind of laugh that, that most of the things that we watch on TV um, are not current at all. So a lot of times people will ask me about something current, and I'll realize that it'll probably be, you know, 25 years from now when I actually take the time to watch whatever is current now based on my current TV viewing habits. But we were watching something that was somewhat current. And uh, in the episode that we were watching of one particular show, um, it became a discussion among uh, two of the main people in it that the wife... Now, it was a reality show, too. It was really um, like a thought-provoking, intellectual episode of Duck Dynasty, just so you know like, what show it was that I'm referring to. And uh, one of the characters, one of the people on that show had mentioned to her husband uh, as their son was preparing to get engaged that she was never super crazy about how he proposed to her. So he had proposed to her about 25 years earlier, and he said, well, what do you mean you, you weren't crazy about how I proposed to you? And I guess what he had done and uh, I hope this doesn't um, ruin anyone else's like fun if maybe you did the same idea, but I guess he handed her a plant, and in the plant, in the midst of the soil, was the ring, and I guess she had to dig the ring out of the dirt to then put it on. And I think in her mind, she's like, I, like I'm covered in soil and dirt now, but all right, I got my, I got my ring. And so she said, I, I was never really crazy about how you did that. And he's like, really? And so as the episode goes on toward the end, he, uh, he thought, you know, I'm, I, I didn't know this about her. I didn't know that she felt that way. So I'm going to switch it up. And uh, they were throwing a party for the son, and the son had just gotten engaged, and he decided that he would re-propose to his wife and uh, propose to her in a way that she found a little bit more uh, endearing and acceptable. And, uh, and he did it all as a way of showing her that he loved her, and she appreciated it, and it was a heartfelt moment. But when you think of ways that people prove that they love somebody else, uh, there's probably things like that that you could think of, maybe like something with a wedding or marriage proposal or, or uh, you know, like, like a, a gift or doing something nice for somebody. But there's a way in which the Lord shows us love that probably would not be one of the main things that we would list if we, if we were asked, tell us the ways that the Lord shows you love. It probably wouldn't be one of the first things that came to your mind, although maybe it would eventually come to mind. But one of the ways that the Lord shows us His love is actually through His discipline. And that's a fascinating thing, I think, for us as believers in Jesus Christ to meditate on for just a moment. The fact that the Lord's discipline is actually evidence of his love. And I bring that up because the portion of scripture we're looking at today from Jeremiah chapter 25, it illustrates that very fact, the fact that one of the ways that God shows his love to his children over the course of their life, and even over the course of generations, is through his loving, corrective discipline. So if you would take your Bibles and open up to Jeremiah 25, we're going to be looking at verse 1 down to verse 14. Jeremiah 25, starting with verse 1. We've been working our way through the book of Jeremiah, 
uh, looking at some of the major chapters or, or major themes found in the book, segment by segment. And uh, today in chapter 25, we're here looking at verse 1, and this is what it says. The word that came to Jeremiah concerning all the people of Judah in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, that was the first year of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, which Jeremiah the prophet spoke to all the people of Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. For 23 years, from the 13th year of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, to this day, the word of the Lord has come to me, and I have spoken persistently to you, but you have not listened. You have neither listened nor inclined your ears to hear, although the Lord persistently sent to you all his servants, the prophets, saying, turn now, every one of you, from his evil way and evil deeds, and dwell upon the land that the Lord has given to you and your fathers from of old and forever. Do not go after other gods to serve and worship them, or provoke me to anger with the work of your hands. Then I will do you no harm. Yet you have not listened to me, declares the Lord, that you might provoke me to anger with the work of your hands to your own harm. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, because you have not obeyed my words, behold, I will send for all the tribes of the north, declares the Lord, and for Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and I will bring them against this land and its inhabitants and against all these surrounding nations. I will devote them to destruction and make them a horror, a hissing, and an everlasting desolation. Moreover, I will banish from them the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, the grinding of the millstones and the light of the lamp. This whole land shall become a ruin and a waste. And these nations shall serve the king of Babylon seventy years. Then after seventy years are completed... I, the Lord, or excuse me, excuse me, it says, then after 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, declares the Lord, making the land an everlasting waste. I will bring upon that land all the words that I have uttered against it, everything written in this book, which Jeremiah prophesied against all the nations. For many nations and great kings shall make slaves even of them, and I will recompense them according to their deeds and the work of their hands. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for the privilege to be able to start off our week taking a look at it and ultimately being taught something about your nature and about how you interact with your people. Lord, we recognize that uh, in your love, you discipline. And Lord, we look at a portion of scripture like this, and it reminds us, of that very fact. And so, Lord, we pray that we would understand this. We pray that as you accomplish this kind of work in our lives, that we would rejoice in what you're doing instead of finding ourselves ultimately seeking maybe to work against you or feeling angered or upset about what you're doing in our lives. Lord, we know that you're trying to produce righteousness and holiness within us, but we also know, Lord, that by nature we tend to fight you in the midst of that process. So, Lord, we pray that you teach us now and help us to apply this portion of your word to our day-to-day lives. And we thank you for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So when the word discipline is brought up, when you hear the word discipline, 
Uh, right away, what kind of images tend to come to your mind? When you hear that word, it probably stokes some sort of image or brings some sort of thought to mind. Do you think about the concepts of maybe practicing personal disciplines, like eating healthy and uh, maybe getting a little extra exercise? You know, is that what comes to mind when you think of the word discipline? Or, or maybe when you think of the word discipline, do you think of it in, re- in regard to some of the spiritual disciplines of reading the scripture and incorporating prayer into your day-to-day routine, or when you hear the word discipline, does it primarily bring up in your mind images related to punishment or images related to chastisement? Because that word gets used in all of those kinds of ways, or at least it brings up those kind of images in our minds. Now, I would imagine that when we were children, there probably isn't any of us in this room Uh, current children included, that got all that excited about our parents disciplining us. And I can guarantee, now I'm not living your life, but um, I can guarantee that if you're a parent, some of your least favorite moments in parenthood have required some form of discipline to be enacted by you. And probably those were moments that you wish you didn't have to enact discipline, but it is what it is, and it's something that has taken place. And and a lot of times I could tell you that some of my least favorite moments as a parent have involved uh, executing some form of discipline. But the truth is when you're seeking to shepherd a young life, the enforcement of discipline is actually evidence of love. It may not necessarily feel that way for the person on the receiving end at, the, at any given moment, but it actually is evidence of love. And that's something that was playing out here in this portion of Scripture that we're looking at today from Jeremiah chapter 25. You have the Lord who obviously loved the people of Judah. So Jeremiah was a prophet to the southern kingdom of Israel, the tribes of, of Judah and Benjamin, typically just referred to as Judah as a nation. And uh, he had been ministering to them at this point now. He's been ministering to them for decades. And he's been speaking the word of the Lord to them and trying to encourage them to follow the Lord. And you have the Lord communicating multiple ways and multiple times, really for generations, but even in the midst of the context that Jeremiah was preaching in, that he absolutely loved the people of Judah and was planning to do a great work in and among them. And in fact, when Jesus Christ came to this earth, Through which tribe did he come to this earth? The tribe of Judah. So it's obvious and it's clear that the Lord loves the people of Judah, but because of their lack of faith, because of their stubborn disobedience, the Lord disciplined them. And he disciplined them with the long-term goal that his act of discipline would convince them of his love and would encourage them to repent. And so we see how this plays out as we look at this portion of Scripture. Now, there's a few things that we learn about our loving God and the way that he incorporates discipline and some of the benefits that he brings into an individual's life through discipline. One of the things that the scripture reveals to us when we look at the opening verses here is that a loving God disciplines his children when they don't listen to his counsel. Let me reread a few of the verses here. Look at what it says in verse 3. It says, for 23 years, so think about what you were doing 23 years ago. 23 years. Some of you are right now saying, okay, I wasn't born. Some of you are saying, that's right when I was born. Some of you are thinking back 23 years ago and saying, that's when I bought this shirt, right? 
uh, I realized not too long ago that I have a shirt that I wear regularly that is now into its third decade. I bought it 20 years ago, and I still like it. And it held up. It's almost like clothing that the people of Israel wore on the way out of Egypt toward the promised land. It just doesn't seem to wear out, right? But, you know, it says here for 23 years in verse 3, for 23 years, from the 13th year of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, to this day, the word of the Lord has come to me, and I have spoken persistently to you, but you have not listened. You have neither listened nor inclined your ears to hear, although the Lord persistently sent to you all his servants, the prophets. Let's pause there for just a second. So you have a very declarative statement being made here through the lips of Jeremiah that the people would not listen as the Lord persistently was speaking to them. Growing up, I had a uh, a, a really good friend, particularly during elementary school, but even in, into junior high and high school, a really good friend that I used to hang out with quite a lot. And we would do all sorts of things together. After school, we'd get together. At school, we would hang out together. Um, we would, I, I remember times we would just literally uh, wander our entire town. Um, uh, you know, lots of good sidewalks where I grew up. And so uh, we had that town memorized. And we would get in trouble together and all of that. And it was a lot of fun to hang out with. But I noticed something very interesting, particularly as we got a little bit older. I started observing how his parents reacted to him when he got in trouble. And I noticed that his parents were very lenient toward him when he got in trouble, almost to the point where they didn't care. And what began to happen in his life is that the forms of trouble or the issues that started cropping up became more and more severe. As things went on over time, it became evident that you know, he was going in a direction that was unhealthy. And as you, got, as you get older, you start to notice different things about people. And one of the things that I noticed about him was that when he would interact with other people, he always seemed to be interacting from a perspective of insecurity. I noticed he seemed very, very insecure. And in fact, I think that was one of the reasons why he was getting into so much trouble. It was like a plea for attention or acceptance or whatever it may be because he was so insecure. And I became convinced that because his family was so lenient that somewhere in his mind, he started to feel like they didn't care about him. And because he felt like they didn't care about him, he was acting like somebody who wasn't convinced that he was actually loved. And when somebody is convinced, when they're going through their life, convinced that they are not loved, they start going in a direction where they try and find love or acceptance or whatever it may be from very unhealthy sources or directions or through various means. And in his case, he would try and draw an unhealthy level of attention to himself uh, because he wasn't feeling love. That's my estimation of what was going on there. And when you look at this portion of Scripture, it does reveal to us that God loves his children. And in fact, he loves his children too much to allow them to go their entire lives ignoring his counsel. And when we look at this portion of scripture from Jeremiah, we're told that at this point, Jeremiah had been preaching as the Lord had given him the words to say, that Jeremiah had been preaching to this group of people for 23 years. Now, as we've been studying the book of Jeremiah, and I have time during the course of the week as I'm putting together my messages in this series, I've had a lot of time to think about what Jeremiah's life must have been like. And I've mentioned this before, but I, sometimes when it comes to a portion of, of the book of Jeremiah where it starts to tell us a time frame, 
I just can't imagine how difficult that must have been for Jeremiah personally to be preaching to this group of people and to be despised for his preaching for 23 years. I have been in context where I have been preaching and it became abundantly clear to me that people were not listening. I remember when I was a brand new pastor, I was serving in a context where it was clear that it, like it was a very divided group of people that I would preach to. And I remember one Sunday, I literally felt like I ran out of words to say. I, I spoke for a few minutes, and then I just stopped. And I, I, I felt like I couldn't muster up uh, the emotional energy to continue preaching. I felt like I just needed to end. But I remember at that point uh, being asked somewhere in that same time period to guest speak at a church that was about 25 minutes away And I remember when I spoke in that context, I remember people seeming very receptive. And I was like, wow, it feels so different when you're speaking to a group of people that eagerly wants to hear the scriptures taught versus a group of people that really wasn't interested. And when I look at Jeremiah's life and ministry, when I see a portion of scripture like this that references the fact that at this point, he's been preaching to them for 23 years and not getting a response how do you keep going on? Like, how do you keep doing that? Unless the Lord empowers you, unless the Lord convinces your mind that this is what you're supposed to do, and that's exactly what was happening for Jeremiah, that's one of those things that, naturally speaking, all you really feel like doing is just disappearing and not saying anything else and just kind of washing your hands of the situation and walking away. But it tells us here that for 23 years, he's been preaching to them. And the scripture also tells us that it wasn't just Jeremiah that was preaching, that the Lord had also sent other prophets who had been speaking the word of God to them. But the scripture tells us that the people stubbornly refused to listen. They didn't want to hear what was being said. Even though what they were being told was correct, they weren't interested in hearing it. they rather go their own way. And what they were doing in their context was they were embracing idolatry, they were worshiping idols, uh, they were doing all sorts of things that were detestable to the Lord. In fact, the scripture seems to indicate here that they dedicated the work of their hands, so like their labor as a craftsman or their labor serving other people, that they dedicated the work of their hands to rebellion against the Lord. And their lack of faith in the Lord resulted in widespread disobedience. That was the issue taking place in Judah. Instead of being an area that just lived out and testified to the fact that the Lord had done miraculous works in and among them, had sent his prophets, had given them uh, his word, had, had caused his temple to be established within the, the borders of their nation. Instead of rejoicing in all these things and serving as a testimony to the neighboring nations of who the Lord truly is. They were going their own way, rebelling against the Lord, blocking their ears from hearing the message of the Lord. How does a loving God, you know, if God truly loves his children, how does a loving God respond to something like this? When he sees the very people that he had set apart as his own, the people that he had made covenants with, how does he respond to seeing this take place among his children? Now, it's true that our Lord is patient. In fact, one of the attributes of God that Scripture makes very clear is that our Lord is the perfection of patience. But it's also true that humanity is quite adept at testing the Lord's patience in every way possible. 
We test his patience in every way possible. And just as the Lord is patient, and just as the Lord is kind, he is also perfectly just and perfectly loving. And it grieves his heart to see people who could enjoy the blessings and could enjoy the benefits of walking closely with him, rejecting that blessing, rejecting those benefits, and just going their own way and rejecting his involvement in their day-to-day lives. And knowing that this situation in Judah was not going to just improve on its own, the Lord intervened. And he did something that was uncomfortable for the people. He intervened with his discipline. There's a familiar portion of Scripture that you've probably heard quoted before that I want to reference right now. And it's from Proverbs chapter 13. And it speaks of the discipline that takes place between a parent and a child. But it says, whoever spares the rod hates his son. But he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. And the idea is that discipline is actually a form of love. Now, I'm not quoting this... uh, parents who really need to get some aggression out. Uh, Some of you are smirking and smiling because you're like, there is the biblical justification I was looking for to just whack my children, right? It's not the point I'm trying to get across. It may, you know, do what works for you, but, um, but no, the idea is discipline in whatever, whatever form, right? If we truly love our children, discipline is something we'll incorporate. I know that, um, one of the things that my wife and I really try and differentiate between is when a child directly rebels or when a child does something irresponsible. Irresponsibility has a much different consequence than direct rebellion. So irresponsibility is like, hey, you were supposed to turn the lights off and lock the door because you were the last one out of the house. And now we just came back from, from grabbing dinner together and realized you didn't turn the lights off and the door's unlocked. And we're missing our TV. You know, <laughs> but no, in a context like that, what, what might be a, a sufficient, you know, form of discipline? Well, it may be, okay, well, you have to chip in for the electric bill. You have to do chores that equal two hours worth of that light being on. So let's say that costs, we'll say it costs $4, right? Hope it doesn't cost that much. Well, let's say it costs four bucks. You know, you owe me $4 of labor for that, right? But that's a very big difference from somebody coming up to you and saying, I know you told me to turn the light off, but watch this hand, Dad. That light's staying on. And then as a parent, you look and you're like, really? That's staying on? Okay, that's good. Because I haven't had the opportunity to put this into practice in a while. The point being, you know, In this context here, you have the Lord looking at the people of Judah. And it wasn't like they were just going in an irresponsible direction. They were looking at him directly and thumbing their nose in his direction. They were saying, you can want whatever you want, God. But if it conflicts with what I want, you lose. And the Lord looks at that and he's like, really, I lose. I who created you. The one who gives you breath, the one who sustains you every single day, the one who's revealed the fact that you can experience eternal blessing through faith in me, the one who has blessed you in countless ways that you don't deserve. And now you think, as my creation that I have also created in my image, that I'm going to allow you to go in that direction any longer. And he says, no. And it's not because I hate you, 
It's because I love you. And it's because I love the children that will come from you. And I love the grandchildren that you're going to have. And I love the generations that are going to need to learn a lesson by what I do through you. And so the Lord disciplines them because he loves them. In our context, right, because this isn't just about the people of Judah living, you know, 2,600 years ago. In our context, how adept are we at listening to God's voice? And maybe we could even ask this, how long has he been trying to get our attention? Because in the context of this group of people, he's been trying to get their attention for quite some time. How far do we go stretching his patience? You know, these are questions I ask myself. Like, Lord, am I testing your patience? Am I trying to stretch your patience a little bit here? You know, have you shown me patience so long that, that instead of listening to you when you speak, I've grown complacent with your grace, and I think I can just continue going in my own direction in perpetuity instead of actually listening to your voice? Scripture reveals to us that when Jesus called us unto himself as his disciples... He told us that his desire for us was that we would listen to and joyfully obey his teaching. Look at this portion, a small segment of his great commission in Matthew 28. Jesus says there, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Christ's desire is that we be obedient to his teaching. Jesus desires that we practice his instruction in our day-to-day living. And he reminds us in that same portion of Scripture that he is present with us. Well, he's present with us doing what? Well, he's empowering us. He's helping us to have consciences that are sensitive to the reality. That when we desire to go in a direction of sinning against him or rebelling against him, we're not rebelling against someone who is out in outer space distance, at a distance from us. We're rebelling against somebody who's right there present with us. We may not visibly see him with our eyes, but what does Jesus say? I'm with you. I'm, I'm right there with you. I'm right there with you. And I've often thought to myself, Lord, when I decide to go my own way, would my behavior change if I could physically see you right now in my presence? And I'm certain that it would. I'm certain that if I could physically see Jesus with my natural eyes, that that would lessen temptation. I think it would anyway. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'd still rebel right there. I don't know. I don't know. But at least sometimes I think, you know what? It does help me to realize what Jesus says here. He says, look, my goal for you is that you learn to actually listen to what I've taught you. As my disciples, that you obey my teaching and that you recognize I'm right there with you. That does have an impact on my willingness to go in certain directions in my life. I do try to picture Christ right there with me as he said he absolutely is. And here we have the Lord revealing to his children that he's loving. And that a loving God, uh, that he, he disciplines his children when they don't listen to his counsel. I like what else the scripture reveals to us, and it's helpful to be aware of. But that's this, by nature, discipline does not feel pleasant. It doesn't feel pleasant. Look at what it says in verses 8 down, down to verse 10. It says, Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, because you have not obeyed my words, behold, I will send for all the tribes of the north, declares the Lord, and for Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and I will bring them against this land and its inhabitants, and against all these surrounding nations. I will devote them to destruction and make them a horror, a hissing, 
and an everlasting desolation. Moreover, I will banish from them the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, the grinding of the millstones and the light of the lamp. So let's pause there for a second. So here, when we look at what's taking place in this portion of Scripture, it reveals to us that through Jeremiah, the people of Judah were being told that life as they knew it was about to change drastically. They were about to experience the discipline of the Lord, and it wasn't going to feel pleasant. And the truth is, by nature, discipline does not feel pleasant. What it does is it jostles us out of of either unhealthy patterns or unhealthy routines that we've adopted, and it forces us to walk in a new direction. Now, during the course of every year, I don't know if you put together a yearly calendar. That's something that uh, I've started to do. I do it for the church. I do it uh, in regard to our family. We, we tend to look through the year and we plan certain things out. And during the course of a year, there are certain milestones that you become used to the fact that they're going to be there at certain, certain times of the year. There are various holidays that we celebrate. So right now, I've been thinking about the Easter season, which is right around the corner. It's one of my favorite times of the year. Uh, there are specific times of the year when we intentionally get together with our family, uh, when, we, when we intentionally get together with close friends. Uh, all of us can you know, think of you know, different times of the year that tend to be typical times of the year for weddings and celebrations like that. So we get together with other people. Just the other day, in fact, I was talking to uh, my sisters about um, uh, some of our plans for getting all three of our families together sometime soon. And uh, what happens when you get together in a context like that? I, I know if you ever came to a family get well, if you ever came to a family gathering of mine, I'd probably be a little embarrassed. Uh, but hopefully, you'd still have fun. Um, sometimes we get a little loud, and sometimes when things get boring, we think it's just fun to argue with each other and uh, make fun of each other. So I don't know if that's your cup of tea or not, but that's kind of what my extended family does. Um, and uh, we make fun of what each other drives because some of us like certain car brands uh, other, you know, than, than others, and, and we make fun of each other's eating habits, and, and we do all that, and we get loud, and we enjoy food together, and we joke, and it's very, very entertaining, and it's very loud, and, um, and then we schedule a time to get together and do it all over again. And I actually look forward to times like that because these are things that end up being like a break in the normal routine. They end up being something that when you look through a normal schedule, when you look through what your day-to-day life is like or your week is like, it's nice to have a break in the routine. It's nice to have something that comes up on the calendar that changes all of that. But imagine, however, if all of that was taken away from us. Imagine if it was taken away. You know, that's what the Lord was telling the people of Judah to expect. That's what he was revealing to them was about to become their reality. He was about to use foreigners to come into that area. And he was going to use them as an instrument of correction upon this group of people. Specifically, the scripture tells us that Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, was going to be brought in against this group of people. He was going to invade the land. He was going to make its leaders and its people subject to him. He was going to take many of the people back to Babylon as captives. And for the people of Judah, the sounds of wedding celebrations, the sounds that came with just conversational joy, the sounds of grinding their grain in freedom, these are all things that were about to be replaced with darkness and gloom. They had abused their freedom, and now they were about to become slaves. 
And understandingly, that would, become, that would be something that would be difficult and devastating for the people living at the time to experience. But again, God was at work among them. This discipline wasn't going to feel pleasant, but it would serve a divinely ordained purpose. Look at what it says in Hebrews 12, verse 11. It says this, and this is interesting to keep in mind, particularly in light of the Lord's discipline. It says, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. Which do you think you would personally prefer? For God to discipline your life or for God to ignore you? Which would you prefer? The discipline of God or the, just God ignoring you? I think as uncomfortable as discipline certainly is, it has its purpose. What's its purpose? Well, the Lord uses it to strip away our idols of distraction. He uses it to foster the fruit of Christ-like righteousness in our day-to-day lives. And in fact, the discipline of the Lord is a protective force in our lives that's, that's often intended to preserve our lives. The Lord loves us enough to discipline us, and as our walk with Christ matures, we're probably going to start to actually notice a pattern of maturity that begins, or that the Lord fosters within us related to this. I think we're more likely, as we've gone through seasons of discipline, as we've gone through seasons of correction, as we've had the Lord speak His wisdom into our minds and into our lives, I think we're actually more adept to become uh, people who notice the harmful presence of sin in our lives before we start to give it a foothold. And I think as we do so, we're also likely to confess it to the Lord and to joyfully repent of it before it becomes necessary for Him to intervene with uncomfortable discipline. That's part of maturity, and the Lord fosters that in our lives as He's seeking to produce Christ-likeness in each and every one of us. So one other thing that this portion of Scripture brings out that I think is worth noting, and that's this. God's discipline only lasts for a season. Look at what it says in verse 11 down to verse, verse 14. It says this, "...this whole land shall become a ruin and a waste." And these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Then after 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, declares the Lord, making the land an everlasting waste. I will bring upon that land all the words that I have uttered against it, everything written in this book, which Jeremiah prophesied against all the nations. For many nations and great kings shall make slaves even of them, and I will recompense them according to their deeds and the work of their hands. So this portion of Scripture references a time span of 70 years. What do you think of a period of time like that? We were talking about a period of time of 23 years earlier in this chapter. What do you think of the time span of 70 years? What kind of images come to your mind when you think of a period of time like that? Does that sound like a long period of time, or does that sound like a short period of time? Meaning, you know, if somebody told you, all right, so if you're a homeowner, if you own a home, and someone told you that your new roof was going to last 70 years, what do you think? That's good. Because effectively what that means is it's going to be somebody else's problem when it's time for it to go, right? Um, yeah, 70 years, that sounds good. But what if someone said to you, you personally will only live 70 years? 
Would you think that was a long period of time, or would you think that was a short period of time? Or how about this? If someone said to you, you're going to prison for 70 years, would that feel like a long period of time or a short period of time? So here it's talking about 70 years, a period of time of 70 years, and depending on how that, that, that period of time is, is thought, you know, in one sense we could look at that in some context and it doesn't feel like it's long enough. And in other contexts it seems extremely long. And the people of Judah were about to go into captivity. They were, supposed to, they were about to spend 70 years as captives in Babylon, seven decades. Now, I don't know if they believed this information when it was first communicated through Jeremiah, uh, because they did have a tendency of ignoring him when he would speak. They didn't tend to listen to the things that he said. So as he's preaching this, my guess is that few people actually believed him when he was prophesying these things. But nonetheless, that's exactly what happened to them. They were taken as captives for 70 years in Babylon. And there's multiple ways to look at something like that as it's referenced here in this portion of Scripture. In one sense, it seems tragic. And in another sense, it seems punitive. And in another sense, it seems merciful. This generation of people, they embraced idolatry. And they stopped listening to the Lord. Your life and my life should never be marked with ignorance to the Lord. You know, we should be people who listen when the Lord speaks through His Word as he communicates, by the Holy Spirit. But this group of people, they stopped listening to the Lord, and they were modeling that lack of faith to the generations that came after them. You know, the children that the Lord blesses you with, not only do they listen to what you say and follow your direct verbal instruction, but they are observing the pattern of your life. And that tends to be what gets copied just as much, if not more, in their day-to-day life. And so you have this generation of people of Judah modeling a lack of faith and outright rebellion against the Lord to their children. So now the Lord was about to take them out of their land, and he's about to do it for 70 years, for seven decades. And in that time, that generation of rebels was going to die off. And the idols that they worshipped were going to be stripped from them. In fact, one of the things that they worshipped... Uh, effectively, was the temple itself in Jerusalem. And what happened to the temple? The temple was destroyed. The good news, and it doesn't sound like in the midst of all this, and it's kind of fun to preach through the book of Jeremiah, but I recognize lots of sections when we get into it, they don't sound like all that good news, do they? Right? It's like, the good news? What, what good news? So you're talking about like these people being taken into captivity and you know, their land being decimated and and, uh, you know, just, just all of this action taking place. But the good news is that just as is the case with our earthly fathers, the discipline from our heavenly father, it only lasts for a season. Again, look at what it says in Hebrews 12, verse 10. It says, for they disciplined us for a short time. So this is referencing human fathers. It says, for they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. The Lord's discipline, it lasts for a season. Very similarly to the kind of experience uh, we have when we're disciplined by our, our earthly fathers. The Lord's discipline, it lasts for a season. And then it finishes. And in this particular context here, once their time of exile was complete... 
what ends up happening when you look at other portions of Scripture, it reveals to us that that when that 70-year period of time was complete, the Lord allowed the children and the grandchildren of this generation to return to Judah. And when they returned to Judah, what did they do? They rebuilt the temple. And they rebuilt Jerusalem. And they rediscovered the Word of God. And a spiritual revival broke out among them. They were hurt for a season, but later experienced great healing and great restoration. Very similar to the concepts in Job 5. It says, Behold, blessed is the one whom God reproves. Therefore despise not the discipline of the Almighty. For he wounds, but he binds up. He shatters, but his hands heal. Had an interesting week. Uh, Last weekend, I had the opportunity. I've I've done this now for uh, a church in Brooklyn uh, for a couple years. Uh, They've asked me to come and speak over the course of a couple days. And uh, so I spoke for them last weekend and uh, was edified in that experience, enjoyed doing that. was specifically talking about concepts related to discipleship and what it means to be a fully devoted follower of Christ. And then this past Wednesday, I had another opportunity to get together with a small group of pastors that invited me to come and speak on that very subject. And so I was meeting with those pastors. And as I was talking to one of the men that was at that training, he's a relatively new pastor, um, I was just edified by my conversation with him. Uh, He's been serving in the church that he serves in for not very long. And in fact, the church he began serving... um, It's one of those churches that was dead, but nobody told it it was dead. You know, there were about 17 people left there when he started serving there not that long ago, less than a year ago. And they didn't know they were dead, but they were dead. Uh, That church in particular, it was unspiritual. Uh, It was ineffective. Um, It had no meaningful witness whatsoever in its community. And I'm convinced that if you ask that church, you know, are you convinced that your best days are ahead of you? Or are your best days behind you? They would have said, no, our best days are behind us. They probably would have referenced things that took place decades ago. And it seemed like the Lord's presence, it seemed like the Lord's blessing had left that church. And now they're just wasting away, basically just waiting for the last member to turn off the lights once they were finished using the property. And uh, I I was talking to this this guy, and uh, he himself wasn't even convinced that many of the people that were part of this church actually believed in Jesus Christ. They just attended this church from time to time and called themselves members. And so he's been serving there over the course of this past year, and he lives directly across the street from the church building, and he started started noticing something very curious taking place. He said, I started waking up most mornings, not every morning, but most mornings right around three o'clock. And he's like, why am I waking up so early? This is way earlier than I would naturally wake up. He'd wake up around three o'clock. And, uh, and try and go to sleep, and he couldn't go back to sleep. And so it dawned on him, you know, maybe I should be using this time to pray. And so he'd look out his window, and the church building was right there, and he'd begin praying for the church and praying for the community. And then over time, he decided, you know, I'm just going to walk across the street to the church, and I'm going to pray in the church. And somewhere along the way, someone noticed that I guess maybe a light was on or whatever it may be, but one of the men that was part of the church started noticing that, and is like, hey, what's going on over there? Why is there a light on at three in the morning, uh, a lot of mornings if I'm up? And he said, I I go over sometimes uh, if I wake up at that time and I pray. And he's like, really? You just just like go over to the church and pray at three in the morning? He's like, yeah, just pray at three in the morning. I feel like that's what the Lord's calling me to do. And so the guy was like, oh, that's interesting. 
And then not long after that, he said, can I pray with you? And he's like, yeah, sure. And so the guy has started joining the pastor and coming over to the church at three in the morning. And they pray together. And the pastor said, mostly I pray out loud. He prays silently, but we pray together during that time. And we don't spend a, a long time there just for a little bit. But if I'm up and he's up, we're over at the church, we'll pray. And uh, then I go back home and sleep for a few more hours and then get up and start the day. And he's also had to confront some long-term areas of just kind of sinful activities or attitudes that have been prevalent in that church. But he said, as he's been confronting these things and as he's been praying and as he's been seeking to actively love the church with the kind of love that he believes that the Lord has shown toward him, he said a curious thing has started to happen there. He said, it seems like there's a bit of a spiritual awakening. And I said, well, is the church connecting with new people in the community? And are the people that were there starting to show a love for Christ? And he said, yes. And he said, in fact, in just the past few months, we've gone from about 17 people to being in the upper 30s. And I was like, well, that's, I said, so effectively, like I recognize a church in the 30s doesn't sound like a mega church or anything like that. But when you, if someone tells you, yeah, our church doubled in the past few months, wouldn't you take notice And I thought, wow, that's interesting, and it's fascinating to see. But basically what happened was you have somebody that's actively showing love, actively confronting some problems, but also doing so in a loving way as he recognizes that that's the way that the Lord has treated him. And so they've gone from this season where they were, you know, I look at it and it's clear that the Lord was not blessing in that context because they were living in rebellion against the Lord. But now it seems like that season is coming to an end, and now all of a sudden people are listening to the Lord, probably in a way that they haven't listened to Him before. Now, I don't know if you've ever experienced a season of the Lord's discipline in your day-to-day life, but if you did, what were your impressions of it? As we finish up, just kind of ask yourself that question this morning. What were your impressions of it when you could tell that the Lord was bringing some form of discipline into your life that was directly related to your unwillingness to listen to His voice? Now, I could speak from my perspective. When there are seasons that I've gone through where I was not actively listening to the voice of God, when I was preferring to go my own direction and the Lord brought different forms of discipline into my life, initially I would feel sad or I would feel angry or there are some times that I felt depressed. In the moment, that's how I felt. Yet the scripture reveals to us that God's discipline, it only lasts for a season. What he begins to do within us is he starts to allow us to see that his discipline is actually evidence of his love. That we shouldn't despise him for interrupting our comfort, but that we should rejoice in the fact that he would care enough to intervene in our day-to-day lives. I think that when you look back over time, particularly as your faith begins to mature, we can thank the Lord for His intervention and His care in our day-to-day lives, that He would care us enough, or care for us enough, to actually reach into our day-to-day lives and shake things up a little bit. And I think for many of us, we could testify to the fact that a season of divine discipline was precisely what convinced our hearts that we truly do need Jesus Christ. We need his power, we need his comfort, we need his presence just as much today as we ever did. And sometimes it takes a jolt or a God-ordained season of pruning to help us recognize that truth. This was a favor that the Lord was doing for the people of Judah. 
and for their children and for their grandchildren and for the generations that would come after them. If the Lord reaches into your life or my life in a disciplining way, it's not because he doesn't like us anymore. It's not because he stopped loving us. It's not because he doesn't care for us. It's actually the exact opposite. It's evidence of his love. He's trying to shake something loose that's gained a foothold in your life that doesn't belong there so that we start listening to his voice once again, rejoicing in the gospel once again, recognizing that we need him, that we need Jesus Christ more so now than ever. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word and for the privilege that it is to be able to look at a portion of Scripture like this portion of Scripture. Lord, I recognize that just even on the surface, when we, when we think about the concept of discipline, it's not, it doesn't tend to be something that we rejoice to necessarily think about or to meditate on or to even think, oh, great, we get to start off our week looking at what your Scripture reveals about how you disciplined the people of Judah. That, on the surface, doesn't seem like some sort of great party or something great or exciting. But, Lord, when we look at this and we think about the long-term effects, we recognize that this is one of the greatest evidence that you give to us of your love and that you do the same thing for us as well. And it can be a scary thing to experience your discipline because sometimes you make it abundantly clear to us that you're not messing around. Lord, there are times in my life that I could look back on and I could say, yeah, that, that was not pleasant. I did not enjoy your discipline in the moment that you were giving it. But I definitely enjoyed the fruit and the result of what you ultimately have accomplished in my life. And I'm sure that I'm not the only one in this room that can testify to that. So Lord, thank you for those moments when you just kind of shake us to our senses. Thank you for caring enough for us to, to show us that you do love us and that you're not eager for uh, sin and rebellion and a hard-heartedness to be the prevailing forces in our day-to-day -day lives. Lord, we're praying that we would be people that listen to your voice, that we would listen to your counsel, that as we look at the scriptures, that we would be mindful of what you have communicated and that we would just joyfully practice the things that you have taught us in your word. We pray, Lord, that we would likewise reflect your heart as we interact with the children that you've blessed us with, that they would see examples of faith and obedience lived out in our day-to-day -day lives, and that that would be something that gets modeled in their living as well. But Lord, we're just grateful for these things. We're grateful for these reminders as we look at your word. We're also grateful, Lord, that when you discipline us, it's for our good, but it only lasts so long. So, Lord, thank you for the work that you're accomplishing. We're grateful for it all. We're grateful for the fact that you've made us aware of our need for the intervention of your son, Jesus Christ. And we pray, Lord, that, that we would just simply walk with you each and every day in every context that you place us in. We pray this all in Jesus' name.